You are listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcasts interview with Seth Siegel, lawyer, activist, entrepreneur, and author of Let There Be Water, Israel's solution for a water-starved world. As we're told that 36% of cities will experience water crisis by 2050, what can we be doing today to learn from Israel's success story and avoid crises? Israel has put together a all-of-the-above strategy on thinking about water uh, to solve everything. And so Israel does a great many different things. They have smart governance. They have, they have taken politics out of water management. They use market forces. They also are very humane so that indigent people aren't without water. They, they revere technology. There's a constant ferment about innovation, and technology is the way they express that. Israel has managed to be so water secure that the people there live as if they're in New York or London. And it's not just for their own benefit. They share their water with Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and Jordanians across the Jordan River and the Kingdom of Jordan. Many of us are really only now waking up to the fact that water scarcity will, will affect all of us if we don't act now. Well, the greatest user of water by far in almost every country in the world is agriculture. And if you can reduce the amount of water in agriculture by even a few percentage points, you can transform the life of people in cities by having so much more water. What Israel has done is it's created a situation where because of that water surplus, they're giving themselves a security that they can not only live a robust contemporary modern life today, but that they can have a comfort that they can plan for the future in a similar way. And from there, then you wrote the book, Troubled Water, which is then is examining water in America. And what did you learn there? And where do well, you feel there's areas for improvement? Every country, especially every advanced country in the world, has a similar problem. And the problem is this. We now live in an industrialized world. There are, just in the United States, about 130,000 chemicals of one kind or another that are in daily commerce. About 50,000 of those are pharmaceutical products. But there is no testing at all as to what the effect of thousands of chemicals will be on our health and safety. And in fact, the book is, is a statement about the, about the bipartisan failure of both Democrats and Republicans to address the lamentable state and the highly, highly contaminated state of our drinking water in the United States. There are, there are as I said, 50,000 pharmaceutical products that have been approved for sale in the United States actually a little bit more. What's ends up happening is people take those medications, they ingest it, they excrete it one way or another through sweat or, or pee or, or otherwise. And that water then goes to the wastewater treatment plant and we are then ingesting it. And we are creating a second order magnitude health crisis in the United States by virtue of this. And there's all kinds of maladies that are, that are being baked into our society and our civilization now because of the fact that we are not intelligently and cleverly using the technology that we have already at hand to purify the water before either it leaves the wastewater treatment plant or before we allow it to go into our drinking water system and come out of our faucets and taps. And in the days when I was traveling around a lot, I would say to audience, look, there are 130,000 chemicals that have been approved for use in the United States, including these 50,000 pharmaceutical products. How many of these chemicals are being currently regulated by the EPA? And the real number is under 100. And as shocking as that number is, 
Even more shocking is that the last time any chemical has been regulated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is more than 25 years ago. So in 25 years, where every year thousands of new chemicals come on stream, and we discover through science that the dangers of, of old chemicals, it's just incomprehensible other than to understand the political process as to the fact that, that the best health for our citizenry is not being looked out for because of the fact that there are other interests who care and prefer to leave these things ambiguous rather than run up all kinds of costs to make our water better. So what does making drinking water safe actually look like, at least in the U.S.? Is it a problem that can be fixed with technology or does it require more disruptive solutions such as the regulation of these chemicals that we use in everyday life as well? The first thing we need to do, must do, is start to have much more research and, and to understand what the health effects are of individual chemicals and then also chemicals that are commonly found in what sometimes is referred to as a cocktail. The second thing is exactly as your question poses, is that we have the tools. We have the tools, whether we do it on a gross national basis where every drinking water facility has to have filtration of a very high level before it goes into our drinking water system, or it's something as simple as we figure out a methodology for having every home have filtration built into the system. I know in your book, you talk about the importance of public awareness in terms of these issues. And in Let There Be Water, you talk about Israel's nothing wasted attitude and the importance of water conservation on an individual level. So I wanted to ask you what you can tell us in relation to the tension that many of us feel in regards to everyday action that individuals can take versus systemic changes. The answer to that, I think, is education. Citizens who care about this can band together, but, but they can do more than anything else. They can take it upon themselves to systematically educate elected officials. And I think that that's something that everyone can do. For better or for worse, without the input of our government officials, we will not solve the drinking water and water scarcity problems. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about climate change in the water crisis and how climate change will exacerbate the effects of the water crisis. I don't want to get into an ideological argument because I find ideological arguments rarely, if ever, convert anybody. <laughs> so, so what I try to do is I try, I try to address people only in pragmatic terms. Are you worried about higher food prices? If you're one of the 40 million people serviced by, say, the Colorado River Delta, are you at all concerned about the fact that we have hit historically low levels of the Colorado River? Does that concern you? And if it does, then let's talk about water scarcity. Does it worry you that there could be global instability over the fact that food prices are going to start rising, as the United States believes will be happening, and more techniques are going to have to be used to come up with, or there'll be less food grown, and then countries will start to be shaky because the population is being restive, and then it's going to change our defense profile. What are you going to do when you have hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of refugees, water refugees, coming from places where there used to be enough water to now there's just not enough water. What is the world going to do then? How are we going to deal with the instability of that? And so the way, the answer to that is let's address it right now. Let's fix the problems where they are. So the people are not given an incentive to pick up and move to somewhere else, except in an orderly way, rather than a disorderly way, which is going to cause mayhem and humanitarian crises of a degree that we have never seen, even after World War II.
I don't want to neglect because you are um, a, a Renaissance figure in terms of the many different uh, things you've been involved in. You've brought, uh, you know, a Broadway production of Man La Mancha to the stage. You're also an author of these inspiring quotes that I know that you've been collecting. I want to speak about the creative aspect of what you do. I try to think of myself as someone who is a translator of creativity, because I think that a lot of creatives have an a strangely inarticulate inability to convey to a larger audience what it is that they are talking about. And I do believe about, uh, that my greatest skill is the ability to take complex or great acts of creativity or great insights of science and to then digest it and bring it to a larger audience so that they can not only enjoy it, but that they can benefit from it. They can only enjoy the idea behind it. That's first. The second thing I would say about creativity is that I think that I think that works of art are persuasive uh, uh, against even the most uh, resistant heart. And that when you open yourself to the creative process, it gives you the opportunity to do what is something that generally is only seen as something that young people do. What I am ever open to is new ideas and new approaches and, and mulling over the idea of whether or not what I, how I've approached the world is the right way to approach the world. And now back to the quotations. Why the quotations? You know, we can read books, but it's hard to retain the totality of a book. But a quotation has the great value that in a few words, you have very important and complex ideas that by constantly re rethinking and reviewing and, and, and reapproaching, you get to understand it from multiple perspectives. And so in my, in my sense of it is, is that I have reread my collection dozens, maybe hundreds of times, such that now each of these little nuggets have become embedded in my DNA, my intellectual DNA, my spiritual DNA, and it allows me to see the world in a new way. I, I think I go back to the collection again and again and again to give me sort of balance in my life. And I, I'm often asked if I have a favorite quotation. And there is one single quote that I have to say, and I've come back to, it's from a, it's from a 19th century British essayist uh, whose name was Matthew Arnold. And in this essay, he wrote, life is not a having or a getting, but a being and a becoming. And I think if you have that as the underpinning of your life, if you have only one quote to drive you, that's a very good one to have because it says in our consumer society that yes, of course, we are going to want more, but what we really want is to be perpetually in a state of, 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 of being in the moment and becoming something new. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.